in a series called You Asked For It. And the bottom line of this thing is you asked questions, and then we tried to address these questions using Scripture. Um, and as Christians, really, when it comes to defining our faith or, or navigating through these, these questions, we have to use the Bible because it is the unchanging truth of, of God. And as followers of Jesus, that's where we bank our faith. Um, and so this isn't some kind of psychobabble to answer questions about culture or about God or about faith. We go to the, the authority we've been given as followers of Jesus, which is the Word of God. And last week, we began a... Uh, a, a series of questions that were about God. And we're going to continue that today, questions about God. And actually, we're only going to get to one question today because this question was so big, I knew we had to take some time just to kind of go into it a little bit, unpack a little bit so we can all understand the question that we have for today. So if you want to follow along today with this message, I encourage you to do so. Um, a couple of ways you can do that. One of those is using the Version Bible app. Many of you have already downloaded the world's most downloaded Bible app, um, the Version Bible app. And if you have a smart device, that's free for you at your app store. And uh, we, we kind of just use the Bible app to push our notes through there. So if you know how to use it, you go to menu, you go to live events, and you find Neighborhood Church there. And all the notes are there for you to use today. Also, just if, if you want a simpler path, go to albanync.org. And go to message, and under message, there's the thing called message notes, and that's where they're available to you as well. Here's the question we're going to tackle today, and maybe you've thought of this question as well. Why does God seem so violent in the Old Testament, and Jesus so loving in the New Testament? So how many of you ever wrestled with this kind of a question before? If you've read the Old Testament, you kind of go, wow. Uh, what happened? And then you look in the New Testament and it's like, oh, it's kind of all lovey-dovey and all, all different, all right? So what happened? Many people have struggled with the apparent contradiction between the violence and the vengeance of the Old Testament and kind of the love and grace and mercy that we see made known in the New Testament. And so to address this question kind of appropriately, we, we got to go back to some Bible basics for a minute. Now, some of you might have had Bible 101 at some point in time in your life, but I'm not going to presume that we all come to this conversation with the same background understanding about the Bible. So here's just a couple of things that are just basic to help us to see that really there's not a contradiction between the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, first of all, the Old Testament and New Testament are not separate books, all right? It's not like... Volume 1, Volume 2, all right? They're, they're not separate books. Um, they are each a collection, actually, of many individual writings or books um, that have been collected, and there are 66 books that compose one single volume that we call the Bible, which, by the way, just means book, all right? So that's why when you're writing a, a paper for school and it's called the bibliography, where you list your books that you referred to, that's the same word as Bible. So it just means book. And it's one volume collection of 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And these 66 books were written by over 40 different authors over a period of about 1,600 years, all right? So we got a lot of time, a lot of authors, all inspired by God to write and to record what they wrote, um, and that is put together, and there's 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there were 400 years when 
God was silent concerning the work of the prophets or the recording of the word of God. So there's 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Now, to be, to be true, the Old Testament and New Testament are both old to us. All right, let me explain. Like the New Testament wasn't written like yesterday, okay? It wasn't even written within our century, right? The, old, the New Testament was written um, almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, the Old Testament, even longer. So when we call these New and Old Testament, it's not because one's like, you know, newer to us. Yeah, it's closer in history to us, but as we look at them, they are both old. In fact, the 39 Old Testament books were written from about 2000 B.C. to roughly around uh, 400 B.C., so spanning about uh, 1,600 years, but it covers 2,500 years of history from the creation of the world all the way through to the close of the prophets that were speaking right up toward the, the time that um, Israel was returning back to their land of promise. The New Testament was written during the periods 45 to 95 AD, and they cover about 100 years of history. So the New Testament covers quite a bit less history than the Old Testament covers. It's just by basic sheer numbers. And of course, we know that the New Testament covers basically the birth of Jesus, his life, and forward. So... We, just to give you perspective, we are just as far on this side of Jesus as Abraham was on this side of Jesus, okay? So we've got a lot of history, about 2,000 years on this side of Jesus. And the Old Testament and New Testament each focus primarily on different time frames of redemptive history, all right? So one of the things you're going to discover is the Bible is one story of redemption, but the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they focus primarily on different time frames. Because the Old Testament is, a, is about life kind of before and during the Old Covenant. So when you look at the word Old Testament, it actually means Old Covenant. Uh, it also means agreement. So that word is basically what God agreed with his people Israel and what they agreed uh, with him. So when we talk about the word testament or covenant, it all reflects back to what was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, when they sat at the foot of the mountains and God spoke to them the commands and how they were to live, and that created for us the covenant between God and his people that we would see play out throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament covers the life of Jesus, his birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection, and then it shows the beginnings of the church, and it also shows the introduction of the new covenant, what was the new covenant? The new covenant, Jesus said, was basically going to be the cross. It was his blood, his life poured out for us uh, that would give us salvation. Not the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the blood of animals, but it was going to be Jesus, the new covenant. That's what we celebrate with communion. So here's the question. Did God change over these years of history from being violent and judgmental to being more merciful and graceful in the New Testament? Or could it be that God dealt differently over the thousand years of history with God's plan of humanity as it unfolded, much like uh, we might parent our kids differently as they progress in age? For example, I don't parent my 23-year-old child the same way I would have parented him when he was three. 
we know that our role in how we parent difference, uh, is, becomes different. And the same thing as we look through the redemptive story from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see God interacting with people differently as that story is progressing, the redemption story. Uh, and let's not also forget that God used different authors to write each book. And so when you read a, a prophet, it's going to look a lot different than when you read like the Song of Solomon, which is basically a romance novel, all right? Um, and so when you look at that book and that book only, it's like, wow, that's about a lot of love and attraction and all kinds of stuff. And then you flip the book and read uh, from Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who's forecasting doom and destruction for Israel and go, wow, what happened to the love story that I just thought we saw in Song of Solomon, right? So the reality is these different books were written by Men who were inspired by God, but they each had a purpose. And so when you read them, it helps to understand why were the Psalms written? Why were the books of history written? Why were the prophets written? Because they all served a purpose in the grand story of what God was doing. But we can't define God just based on the book of Psalms only, or just based on the book of Jeremiah only. They are revelations of God that have been put together. And so like we said, the Old Testament is primarily about God and His covenant with the nation of Israel, and the New Testament is primarily about God's relationship through Christ Jesus now to all of fallen mankind. So if, if Jesus is God, which I am proposing He is, the Trinity is a great mystery for all of us. I, I try to think about the Trinity, and it, and it hurts my head to think about the Trinity, and I'm sure you've tried to do the same. But what we have to embrace revealed in Scripture is God is one, yet three. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see evidence of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We see evidence of the Trinity in the New Testament. So if Jesus is God, which He is, then why is Jesus so nice in the New Testament while God appears to be so angry in the Old Testament? So the characterization that God of the Old Testament is angry and violent, but that Jesus in the New Testament is loving and peaceful, it kind of fits well within our polarized times in which we live. We live in a time when we want to push the polar opposites, don't we? I mean, think about our political scene right now. Um, think about our cultural issues that we're dealing with. What's happening? We have polar opposite viewpoints and we've created a further rift between the two. I, I, I saw an infograph uh, once that was very helpful that showed that back in the day, even Democrats and Republicans were somewhat moved toward the center on how they felt about issues, but now there is an absolute polar opposite between those viewpoints. Why? Because we've become people of extremes. You're either all this or not that, or you're all that and not this. You get the point. So those are the things that begin to divide us. And so the idea that the Old Testament is the polar opposite of the New Testament fits very well within our culture. In fact, it's one of the primary arguments that atheists use against the existence of God, is the fact that he looks like a confused God who was enraged. Why in the world would I want to serve him? So they want to peg God into one end or the other. And that becomes the challenge. So it sounds something like this. This is their argument. The Old Testament God is violent, but the New Testament representation of God, Jesus, is tender and kind. Old Testament God is wrathful, but New Testament Jesus is forgiving. Old Testament God is warlike and seems to conquer people with lots and lots of blood and high numbers of casualty, yet Jesus in the New Testament is all about peace. 
And God in the Old Testament seems mean while Jesus is nice. And and God in the Old Testament appears to be racist and sexist and and patriarchal while Jesus seems to be tender and and kind and all-inclusive. So how do we reconcile the differences of what God looks like in the Old and New Testament? But here's the thing. The idea that the Old Testament God is opposite of the New Testament Jesus violates the clear teaching of the Scripture of the nature of the Trinity, that God is one. And when you look at Jesus and you you experience the Holy Spirit, you're experiencing the Father God. They're all one, which again, hard for us to understand, but God the Father and Jesus are one and the same. And they don't have different personalities. They're, they're, they're not in conflict. They're not in contradiction because if they were in contradiction, they wouldn't be one. Okay, so that goes against the teaching of God being one. In fact, during Jesus' ministry, his three and a half years of ministry that were recorded in the New Testament, he never tried to separate himself from the Old Testament God. He never tried to... Um, distinguish himself from that Old Testament God. He never said that what happened in the Old Testament was bad and wrong, and I'm here now to kind of give a new public image to God. That wasn't at all what Jesus did. I mean, if anything, he could have come and said, all right, guys, what happened back then? Just scratch it all, forget all about it, because I'm the new face of God. That's not what he did. In fact, he did the exact opposite. I'm going to show you some scriptures, because in John chapter 1, Verse 18, as John is introducing the purpose of his letter, and he's talking about Jesus, this is what he says. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, the way Jesus interacted in his ministry was making the Father known. By the way, the same Father who was the old Testament God. All right? John 5 19, Jesus said these words Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. So the doing that you see Jesus doing in the New Testament is the doing of God the Father, the God that we would call the God of the quote Old Testament. All right? Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 5 22 and 23. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And in John 10.30, Jesus just simplifies the point. This is what got him in a lot of trouble. But he said this, I and the Father are one. And when he said that, there were people that were ready to kill Jesus because that was blasphemous for any man to declare that he was God. But Jesus proved his divinity in his life ministry, his death and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that he is God. John 10, 37, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. So what he's doing in the New Testament, again, is the works of the same Father that was the God of the Old Testament. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So Jesus never tried to distinguish himself from God of the Old Testament. So if Old Testament God is righteous and forceful when dealing with sin, then you have to expect that New Testament Jesus is the same 
when it comes to sin. And if New Testament Jesus is caring and loving, then you have to assume God of the Old Testament is. So perhaps our greatest error has been to think of the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus as two separate beings. Instead, we should be speaking of the God of the Bible. There's one God who has a story that encompasses the whole of Scripture. And this means we no longer have to try to explain away the personality differences between the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus. So instead, the question becomes more refined. It says, did did Bible God then change from Old Testament to New Testament? Because it sure looks like he did. But we talked about this last week. We talked about the immutability of God, the inability of God to change. And in Malachi 3.6, God says this, I, the Lord, do not change. So what happened in the Old Testament? God did not change as we transition into the New Covenant. The Bible reveals God as one who abhors evil. He hates it and sinfulness. And he always will hate evil and sinfulness. Okay? But the Bible also presents God as forgiving and as merciful and as gracious. And guess what? God will always be merciful and forgiving and gracious. He is true to his character. So is the Old Testament revelation of God really that different from the New Testament revelation of God? Let's do a little pop quiz. How many of you love pop quizzes? None of you. Well, you're going to take one. Just humor me, all right? So on a piece of paper, you can use the back of the bulletin, or you can use a note in your, in your phone. I'm going to give you six scripture passages, but I'm going to leave out the reference of where they're found, all right? And your job is, as I read the text, is to ask the question, is this Old Testament or New Testament, all right? Which God are we seeing, quote, Old Testament God or, quote, New Testament Jesus, okay? So here's the, here's, you ready for the test? We're not going to ask for a show of hands, maybe, on those who got them all right. But here we go. Is this Old Testament or New Testament? Number one, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Is that one, Old Testament or New Testament? And in, in the shorthand, you can just put OT. <laughs> that's not overtime. That's Old Testament. And you can do NT, of course, for you. Well, you can guess what that is. All right, so is that Old Testament, New Testament? Number two, then he shall say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Is that Old Testament or New Testament? Write it down. Number three. But if a wicked man turns away from all his sins he has committed and and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, then he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So number three, is that Old Testament or New Testament? Number four, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. So hate evil, love good, and maintain justice in the courts. 
Cast your vote, Old Testament, New Testament. Number five. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together and for the great supper of God, so you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had Formed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest of them were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Old Testament or New Testament. And finally, number six, when God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. All right, cast your votes. They're all cast. Like I said to first service, no phoning a friend, no polling the audience, and no million dollars. All right. Here, though, are the answers to your questions and the locations of where they are found. So Micah 6, the idea of acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly, that's Old Testament God. That's in the words of our atheist, mad, angry God, who's a God of hate and war. Number two is Matthew, that's New Testament, that's Jesus, which sounds like angry eyebrow Jesus, right? I mean, that does not sound very kind when he talks about eternal um, punishment, Number three is Old Testament, Ezekiel 18. This is about a person turning from their sins and God uh, basically um, not holding their sins against them when they turn to him in righteousness. And that's Old Testament. That's that God that just wants to kill and hate sinners, right? Um, Number four is Old Testament. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Number five is New Testament, birds eating flesh, eternal fire, sulfur. That's New Testament. Number six, when God saw what they did, how they turned from evil ways, he had compassion. Guess what? That's Old Testament. That's Jonah, the story of the Ninevites who were wicked, evil people before God. And he sent Jonah as a last-ditch effort for them to repent, and they did. And Jonah was torqued that God had mercy on him, but God did. Now, I know it's kind of a pushing the envelope a bit on these questions, but, but the reality here is they don't present a one-sided, polar opposite view of God in Old Testament and New Testament. Rather, the Old Testament shows the full range of God's character, and the New Testament also shows God's attributes and the full spectrum of who he is. One story throughout. So both the Testaments, God the Father and Jesus the Son, are revealed as compassionate. They are revealed as peace-loving and forgiving and patient and kind. But they're also revealed in both Testaments as wrathful, powerful, and violent against sin and against evil. So God's approach 
to those he loves, and his approach to, the, to sin and evil do not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? God is the same as he approaches to the people who call upon him in mercy, and his wrath towards sin and evil has not changed from Old Testament to New Testament, hasn't changed from B.C. to now A.D., and additionally, the Old Testament covers 2,000 years of history. So there's going to be a lot of story of bloodshed because it's covering a lot of history. It's covering a lot of God preparing a place in the land for his promised people. There is wickedness that God deals with in the protection of his nation Israel. We see all that, but that's 2,000 years plus of history where the New Testament just covers a small window, the life of Jesus and the growth of the church and then the end times that are coming. So remember, it's a progressive history. So everything in the Old Testament, here's the point, you can't miss this. Everything in the Old Testament cannot be viewed without the New Testament. That's why I feel so sorry for our Jewish friends who do not embrace that Jesus was the Messiah and do not embrace the gospel of the New Testament because they're living under the Old Testament view of God. You need both. You can't, by the way, look at the New Testament without the backstory of the old, because it is one overarching story. We'll come back and talk more about that later. But remember that redemption from sin or judgment for sin are the only two possible outcomes that we see throughout the whole of Scripture. Either people are repenting or they are experiencing the wrath of God. That is the truth of the whole sum of Scripture. It boils down to those two things, redemption or God's wrath. So let's review. There's no difference between the Old Testament God and New Testament Jesus. They are one and the same. Okay? They are God, the God of the Bible. And secondly, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So any dissimilarity we see between the Old Testament and New Testament cannot be attributed to the fact that God has somehow changed. He hasn't. He's the same. So perhaps what's missing then is our view of God's perfect love that is displayed for us throughout the whole of Scripture. See, we live in a culture where the concept of love does not have a universally accepted meaning. In fact, you could say it this way. A person can love a good ribeye, and a person can love his wife. Is that the same kind of love? I don't know, it's pretty close. You know, it's a ribeye. No, it's not. But the, the weakness of the, of the English language is that we just have love. And if you really want to give emphasis, you can say, well, I really love. Okay, but all we have is love. So that love has become tainted and distorted, hasn't it? And then we try to look at God through the lens of this broken view of love. When God is the, the sum of perfect love. And so perhaps the reason we struggle with the full picture of God throughout the Bible is because our definition of love is too small. That we have a distorted view of a God of love. If God is a God of love, then why do I see him act this way in the Old Testament? Your view of love is too small. It's too imperfect. Many of us want God's love to be like the the, the doting, spoiling grandfather who is permissive, yet still protective, but by no means a disciplinarian, right? You go to grandpa's house because you want candy, 
and, and you want, you know, you, you want to do whatever you want to do. So you go there because you know he's not going to, well, maybe some of your grandfathers are different, but uh, maybe he's going to be that doting grandfather who's like, whatever, do whatever you want. In that view, then, then God should allow us to do anything that's true to ourselves, just as long as nobody gets hurt. Okay, that's kind of our view of the the. the, 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 the Grandfather who spoils. And what happens? If that's our view of who God should be, then we look to Scripture that defends that kind of God, and then we reject or resist Scripture that doesn't paint that kind of picture of God. But God's love is not as anemic or weak as we make it out to be. It's not imperfect. It's perfect. And it's that full-bodied love that's enriched by all of God's attributes, His holiness, His justice, That's all part and package of God's love. But here's the deal. We get in trouble when we try to view God through only one lens or aspect of his character. So you hear things like, God is love. You sing about it in Sunday school. So it's like, okay, God is love. So I look at the Old Testament through this lens of God is love and go, wow, that is not love what I'm seeing take place. Well, that's because you're only looking at it through one lens of God's character. Yes, he is love, but you know who he also is? He's just, and he's holy. He is fully love, so he fully loves you, but he is also fully just. And I'm so glad that he's not a yo-yo like we tend to be, where one day we're like authoritative, it's like my way or the highway, and the next day you're permissive, and your kids don't know who in the world you are, and you raise confused kids because you go back from being a a very hard and and, and angry parent to a loving and kind parent, and they don't know what to do with that. And so people who think that that's who God is, they look at God and go, who are you? Are you love or not? And his answer is, I am love, but I am also just, and I'm also holy, and I will be true to every aspect of my nature, and I will not change. Now, I'm setting this up to be good news for us because God doesn't change. Have you ever considered that justice is a necessary component to love? Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that there are people who have been thrown off of a cliff. Now, love would certainly be God going down to the broken who are hurting at the bottom of that cliff and helping them and attending to them, and that would certainly be love. But if that's all it was, would it truly be love? Or would love also be just, who would mend those broken and then walk up to the top of the cliff and deal with the people who were throwing people off the cliff? right? Wouldn't that also be love? Yes. So love without justice is just permissiveness. It needs both. And God in his nature and his attributes will always be true to everything he is, just, loving, holy. He will be all of those things in the full dimension of who he is. Our problem is we want God to either be just or to be loving. But God, you really can't be both. Because loving sounds a lot better to me because I can do whatever I want to and, I'm, I'm, and we're all going to go to heaven. But the justice of God says no. Here's the way. So it's hard for us because we tend to not view the perfection of who God is. But here's the deal. The cross is the primary example of the fullness of God's love 
and the fullness of God's holiness and justice. It met at the cross of Jesus. Let me remind you, instead of God's wrath being poured out against us in Old Testament form where maybe there's plagues that would come and strike us or there was an army that would invade or, or there was fire from heaven that would consume and deal with sin, aren't you so glad that instead God himself entered humanity, Jesus, the Son of God, who came as the solution for the sin problem in our world to appease the holiness and the justice of God, that there had to be a consequence for the brokenness of humankind called sin. But there was only one who could pay that price, the perfect Son of God who was sinless. So God himself inserts himself into time and space incarnate Jesus. And on the cross, God's wrath and his justice and his holiness meets with his love. And guess what we have the benefit of? A term we call justified. That when God looks at us, his righteous and holy justice is met in the atonement of Jesus, the one who died in our place. That is the supreme example. That's why I don't want God just to be loving and why I don't want God just to be just because the cross is the meeting point where his holiness and his justice and his love and mercy and forgiveness met. And the collision was called Jesus dying on a cross for you and for me. How do I know that? Paul talks about it in Thessalonians 5.9. He says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Remember, he doesn't take delight in the wicked dying, okay? He didn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, who walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry, says this in 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Once. The righteous the one who was the only one who could stand there in that place, the holy one, the righteous for us, the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. To bring you to God. God wants to be with you. So Jesus, God the Son, took the punishment that we deserved, and in so doing, he satisfied God's holy and justifiable wrath against our sin and against evil. So here's the thing. The thing that changed between the Old Testament and New Testament wasn't God. And it wasn't God's wrath or, his God, or God's love. It was our role in receiving it that changed. See, God, in the greatest act of love and grace, took it on himself to protect us and offer us salvation through Christ Jesus. So what changed was our role in receiving it. The old covenant, the sacrificial system, the, 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 the lambs that were offered, the goats that were offered, the blood that was poured out because of the consequence of sin that needed to be met, Jesus came once for all. His blood, his death, his life for ours. We're the ones, and our role in receiving it has changed. That's why it's old covenant now replaced with new covenant, Jesus so instead of assuming that two testaments are at odds with each other, let's carefully read the Bible in search of the one overarching cohesive message that is there and avoid reading the Bible as if it was two separate novels, Old Testament, New Testament. Let me give you an example. 
Some of you have watched the good old standard classic, The Wizard of Oz. I remember watching it as a kid and just being totally afraid of the Wicked Witch. Interesting concept behind that movie. Some of you remember watching it for the very first time. When the opening scene begins, it's in black and white. It's in Kansas, featuring a, a girl named Dorothy in dusty Kansas, and, and there's tornadoes, and terrible things happen. And what if you just turned the movie off at that point and said, I don't want to watch a black and white movie about some girl named Dorothy in Kansas with those tornadoes. This sounds too terrible. So you just turned it off at that point in time. Would you have the fullness of the story of The Wizard of Oz? No, you would just have really what is the precursor to the story, right? Because if you turned it off too soon and you didn't watch where the, where the house landed and something magical happened, color appeared. It's like, well, this isn't a black and white movie. This, this is color and there's little munchkins running around singing to us and, and there's a lion and, and, and there's a scarecrow and all of a sudden you see a, a whole different dynamic to the story that moves to a close. See, this is what happens when we want to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. You can't. It's one overarching story that meet together in the beauty of God's redemptive story. So here's the thing. The overarching story of the Bible is God's relentless pursuit of reconciliation with a humanity that's rebelled against and rejected him. That's the story. And it happens in Genesis through Revelation. In fact, I think Jesus brings this to a fine point, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, the early part of his ministry. And as a, a member of his community of age, he would be involved in the synagogue. The synagogue was their church, okay? That was the Jewish church. And in the synagogue, he would learn scripture, which, you know, is ironic. Imagine being Jesus' Sunday school teacher. All right, but, um, but he went. He faithfully went. And one day he was called upon to read from the scroll, which was something that you would do. Occasionally you'd be called upon to read, and you would have an assigned reading portion. So here's the story. Luke captures it for us, and I don't have it on the screens for you, but, but just listen. Luke chapter 4, if you want to write it down, is where this takes place. Beginning at verse 16, it says that he, being Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And as was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So he's not selecting from the scriptures. He's not trying to pick one to suit his fancy. This was the scripture reading of the day. Some of you grew up in maybe a liturgical church where they had a scripture reading for the day. And if you went away from it, you that you're in trouble. So this was, this was what happened. The scroll was handed to Jesus, and he opens it. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. By the way, this is Old Testament God. Okay, This is the prophet Isaiah, so just keep that in mind. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach or proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was on him. I'll talk in a minute why they were watching him. They were fastened on him. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, why was everybody interested in Jesus? Almost shocked when he stopped reading. I'll tell you. Because Jesus didn't finish his assigned Bible reading. Isaiah goes on from that point to finish the statement. Jesus read through to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. And he stopped. And guess what he did? He stopped mid-sentence. Isaiah finishes the thought. You know what part he opted not to read in this season was this. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus stop at the year of the favor of the Lord, to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Why would he stop there and not continue on to vengeance? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus came to usher in a season of the favor of God. He came to go to that cross, to be an expression of God's favor, and it would enter us into a season of grace where we could call upon God through the work of Christ Jesus that he knew he was coming to do, going to that cross, that would unleash a season of God's favor. But listen to me, it's a season. And the day of God's vengeance is coming. And I know that's not preached enough in church today because nobody likes to think about the vengeance of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's all lovey-dovey and grace-filled and peaceful. Well, you better read Revelation, friends, because the year of the Lord's favor has a season. And I don't want any of my family or my friends to unwittingly experience the wrath of God that will come when this season of grace comes to a close. So we're in a season of the Lord's favor that's made possible through the sacrifice of His Son Christ on the cross, but it will come to an end. Jesus says it this way, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the favor of God. But listen, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's Jesus talking. Friends, he's not changed. God still relentlessly pursues humanity that they might know his grace and his mercy. And if they don't experience that, they will experience his wrath because God is fully loving and he is fully just. So what does that mean for you today, for me? That means, one, I I may have had my defenses and excuses of why I couldn't believe in a God who was full of violence and vengeance, but maybe this is made a little bit clearer. I know that answering in 40 minutes a big question like this is next to impossible. But it's a start, I hope, for some of you who have been skeptical about that and can't believe in a God who would do those kinds of things that almost look like genocide in the Old Testament. He's not changed. And we're in a season of his grace and mercy. Let's not close an eye to this season. And if you're here and maybe you've been skeptical and hopefully this has brought some clarity, I hope you respond to the grace that Jesus came to be a revelation of the love of God 
that also met his justice. And for some of you, that means you need a boldness because you've got family, you have friends and loved ones who are far from God. And this season of favor is coming to an end. We don't know when. Jesus promised he would come back, and when he comes back, that's it, friends. God's wrath, as poured out in Revelation, begins to be revealed upon the evilness and the sin in our world. So we need boldness like never before to preach the good news of Jesus. So let's pray about that as we close today. Lord, thank you that you have never changed. That the fullness of your love and grace and mercy and the fullness of your justice and your wrath is revealed throughout the whole of Scripture. And who are we to judge you, the one true living God who's perfect, in our imperfect judgments that are often narrow-minded because we refuse maybe to bow a knee to a God who does love us. I pray for any today in this room that maybe have not responded in this season of your favor, that this would be a day they would choose that. That this would be a day when they embrace the grace that's made available to us in the cross, demonstration of your love and justice. And if you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, I, I feel like that's where I'm at. I, I need to respond to the full measure of God's love and justice that was demonstrated in the cross of Jesus. I need to receive forgiveness and begin this journey with God. If that's you today, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Would you pray with me today? Thank you. Anybody else? That's me today. Pray with me. Let me just tell you before we pray that God loves it when you talk to him. And in your own way, you can just say, God, I love you, and and I believe that Jesus was and is your son and the solution for my sin problem. So thank you, God, for dying for us, that we might have forgiveness. Forgive me today, Lord, of my sin. I want to follow you and grow to know the fullness of who you are. For others today, maybe you have loved ones, friends, that you're concerned about today because they're not in a relationship with Christ. Raise a hand if that's you. you got somebody you love and care about. Can I just pray that we'd be be bold? Lord, help us. Help us not take for granted this season of favor. Let us not wink at the reality of your wrath that will fall upon this earth and the wickedness and evil that is here because we've got loved ones who are in the pull of that right now. So God, I pray for a Holy Spirit-birthed passion for our unsaved friends and family. That, Lord, you would give us the words to say, the timing that only you can bring. I thank you your word promises us that the Holy Spirit is faithful to help us to know what to say in season. We may not feel equipped, but God, you will help us. So Lord, help us. Not to be so selfish in our own salvation that we forget about or neglect those that we love that will face eternal wrath. That's not your desire. You, you don't delight in the, in, the, in the wrath of the wicked. But your justice will be met. But thank you that you have shown us your grace. 
Help us be messengers of that to our family and friends. Now, as we go from this place, may we go in your grace and peace and and be agents of the same. In Jesus' name, amen.